You are listening to Fanfare Tracks. Because of the following special program, Wonder Woman and the Incredible Hulk will not be presented this evening. Star Wars news in a single file. This is Making Tracks. Here are your hosts, Mark Newbold and Mark Lowcaster. That's not true. That's impossible. Greetings one and all and welcome to the Mandalorian Reaction Chat brought to you by those dank ferrics over at fanfatracks.com. This is a spoiler-filled episode, so if you haven't seen Chapter 18, The Minds of Mandalore, then what are you waiting for? Pause this and go watch it. So last week we caught up with the clan Mudhorn as Din Djarin and Grogu return to our screens. Din is on a quest to be redeemed as a Mandalorian after admitting to the armour, and why would he do that? But he revealed his face to Grogu. After visiting Magistrate, I mean High Magistrate Grief Karga, on the now bustling port of Navarro, Din attempts to reanimate what's left of IG-11 to help him safely traverse the decimated wasteland of Mandalore and get him to the sparkling waters of the Beskar Mines. After the revival of IG-11 didn't go quite to plan, he then tried to enlist the help of Bo-Katan, who's been deserted by the rest of her clan now she's no longer the owner of a Darksaber. But that hasn't deterred him. We start this week's episode heading back to a familiar dust ball of a planet and visiting one if not the most dishonest residents in Moss Eisley. And visiting me this week, and in fact every reaction chat, is a character who is by far the most honourable of a fan for tracks team. That's Mark Newbold. So jumping straight in, Mark, what did you think of this week's episode? Wow, chapter 18. I mean, last week's was pretty special. And I think as a launch for a season, given that we'd had that break and the stuff in the Book of Boba Fett, coming back last week felt really, really good. And I think most people were pretty damn satisfied. But this week, good grief, I sat down expecting something good and got something great. For me, I'll be honest, my heart kind of sank the moment that we started on Tatooine with uh, Pelly. And it's got nothing to do with Tatooine because I love Tatooine. But I just sometimes think that the Pelly Motto episodes have a certain tone. And I completely understand almost why they've done it in some respects because... It's quite a heavy episode and it's a very dark episode, you know, tonally speaking. I was really surprised and really surprised that we've got to Mandalore in the second episode of the third season. He kind of thought, or at least I kind of thought, that maybe the whole Minds of Mandalore thing would be almost something that would cover at least the first half of the season, if not more. Especially how it was set up last week. Oh, you've got to go get the droid repaired and yada, yada. That's probably going to move on to something else and, you know, another side quest here and another side quest here. But no, you know, they've kind of, really cut to the chase which leaves me super excited for the rest of season three because i have no idea what to expect i felt very much the same last night before the episode landed there was lots of stuff floating around on the internet and then and the title minds of mandalore came up and i thought ah, is that the real title or is that just kind of a fan thing and wasn't quite sure it's quite a long title for a mando episode it didn't quite feel like it might fit because they're generally fairly yeah. brief titles but it felt like this season was all about getting to mandalore and clearing his name and we're here in the second episode so i don't think there's any lack of plot to get through for Favreau and Filoni. feels like there's a lot of stuff they want to do. In the same way that we 
maybe anticipated at the end of season two when they were separated that season three would be all about getting them reunited again. You wouldn't expect that to happen in another show, and it did. So that's a bit of a curveball. And here we are again at the start of season three, thinking that all of it's going to be about getting to Mandalore and bathing in the living waters. And by the second episode, he's bathing in the living waters. Well, he's drowning in the living waters. It's nice to feel like the episode's have got a lot to give. There's something comforting about kind of returning to the Mandalorian season, having had the angst and the tension of Andor. This, although mm. it's, um, you know, it's exciting about it, feels not quite as heavy in that kind of respect. So it makes it a much more enjoyable mm. watch, at least in the way that it's all on the screen. Subtext isn't necessarily something that you necessarily need to read into quite as much as you did with Andor. So it makes it obviously very accessible to a much wider audience, but also just means you can just kind of sit back and enjoy the ride. This is Star Wars and Romandalorian firing on all cylinders. Opening on Tatooine is always a good thing and being on that planet is great and exploring it is fantastic and goodness knows we've seen a lot of it in the two, well, the three, if you include Kenobi, the three live action series right there. Kenobi was a, a lot on Tatooine. Mando's been there plenty of times and Book of Boba Fett was predominantly on Tatooine. So you've seen a lot of the planet and it's always great to go back. But like you say, the Pelly episodes, it's a bit goofy. It's a bit cheesy. That's the character. She's a fashion oh, character. Yeah, massively. Yeah, she's, um, I was going to say Saturday Night Live all, all over, I think. But it is funny. It made me laugh how she was turning the screws on the road in. And then as soon as he goes, mm. like, she calls the showers back in to kind of go, right, <laughs> yeah. you've got to put it all back off. So clearly they've gone out and they've stripped the, uh, the land speeder whilst he's been away and that. And <laughs> You know, which you could yeah. totally imagine. It's Tatooine. What it's nice about it, again, it doesn't necessarily feel cruel. You know, it's just somebody no. just making their way in the galaxy. And what's also nice is this whole notion that actually, not so much what we saw in Phantom Menace, but it seems now by um, this point in the timeline, Boon to Eve is a really big thing. It's like, you know, she's like, oh, it's, you know, it's Boon to Eve and, you know, there's all this fireworks and stuff. Yeah, I mean, Boon to is a hot holiday. Is it? Ah. So, yeah, it celebrates the rise of Boonta to Godhood. And we know Tatooine is very much in, in the sort of the circle of the huts anyway, not just because of Jabba. So that makes sense, like you say. And you don't tend to see pod racing post Phantom Menace anyway. You sort of see bits of it on the screen in the Sack of the Clones, don't you, in the, in the Outlander. But for the most part, I think in this time period, pod racing is mostly gone. And you do see some speeders skidding around town. And so maybe that's now the Boontary yeah. classic. I don't know. That's just supposition. But it was kind of cool to see that shot. It looked busy. It looked like there was stuff going on. And wow, I've got to say the visuals, when you see the N1 coming into the docking mm-hmm. bay, the visuals were just so good. And, and again, another outstanding episode in terms of what we saw on screen. Pretty flawless. And the music was great as well. So just a a tip of the hat to everybody involved there for just making this one. And I think watching last week's was supremely impressive and very satisfying. But I think when you and me were talking, I made a point of saying that we've got Picard season three at the moment, Star Trek, and they have been using some of the old classic music. And so they've spotted it like a movie. So it feels very cinematic. Whereas last week in Mando, when you had that great asteroid chase, the music was quite slow and ponderous and it just felt like it didn't need the asteroid music. I'm not saying use that, but it needed a bit more pace. It would have felt more cinematic because there was certainly plenty going on on the screen, but the music was quite duh, 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 duh. In this episode, the music really did feel like it was matching what we were seeing on the screen. It felt much more cinematic this week. So I don't know whether that was a conscious decision, whatever, but yeah, it was really impressive this week. Fantastic. As much as I was really looking forward to seeing IG-11 come back properly, to have our R5-D4 
was really cool. Again, the way she was kind of like selling him to Din and stuff like, you know, he was uh, he served with a rebellion. That's interesting. As far as I was aware, beyond him being in like a story from a certain point of view from the, the first book, he hasn't really served him. At least there's no canon record of him. And obviously at a certain point of view is canon adjacent, which again, to be fair, you could argue that with Expanded Universe these days or the old uh, legends. So therefore, it's nice that they thought, oh, that's actually a really neat idea and pull it in. I wonder if that's a Favreau thing, like, he, you know, he really likes R5-D4 because I think, you know, if it was one of the directors, they would make a point of it being like a cameo in maybe their episode. Mm. But the fact that he's been recurring in so many of his episodes in one shape, form or another, I think just that, yeah, there's somebody there who's really touting for um for R5-D4 to kind of be elevated higher than his bad motivator allowed in A New Hope. It's kind of cool, though, that in The Mandalorian... Within a couple of episodes of each other, we've seen R2-D2 and R5-D4, who are both in that lineup on Tatooine, Uh which you've just seen. You know, and if R5's motivator hadn't gone, we wouldn't have the story we've got. In-universe, we wouldn't have the story we've got. He is kind of galactically important because of his failure. And so to see him in this, I mean, really, after R2 and 3PO, he's one of the original ones that matters. So to see him again in modern storytelling, in an era that really, eight or nine years after A New Hope, maybe 10 now, to see R5 get used. And actually, in this episode, used really well. Also, it gave a real nice explanation for how those droids fit inside those N1s because you look at R2 and it's like, R2 should not fit in that N1, but they've kind of reconfigured it a little bit. So it made sense how R5 fits into that N1. We saw it in the X-Wing in Mm -hmm. Last Jedi, how BB-8 can move the head Mm -hmm. up and down and sort of separate. And that was a physical thing. They actually built the puppet to do that. So... I kind of like that in-universe retcon to make things make more sense than they probably do. Yeah, I think so. I mean, like the design aspects, and and I think it's quite cool actually how VM1 seems to be flexible in terms of like its layout and and stuff like that, and you know having a droid or you know a little bubble for kid. Still not quite sure where the pram goes. I'm pretty point. sure he left it on the planet and then, oh, well, there it is. So, I mean, unless, of course, Bo-Katan just happens to have one around because she might feel broody at some point. I was like, is that a bit of a convenient continuity error? <laughs> like, where does Luke's ladder go on the x Exactly. Sort of what could have been nicer would have been for them to just return pretty much to the same spot and then he grabs it because it's still there <laughs> hovering. Hi, this is Gareth Edwards, director of the best standalone Star Wars film since Caravan of Courage called Rogue One. You're listening to Panther Tracks. Enjoy. He makes his way from Tatooine with R5-D4 and Grogu gets a little bit of a more navigational kind of lesson. So this is this is obviously yeah. going to be setting something up and we kind of do see this in this episode. Just in the last couple of episodes, he's really starting to train Grogu as almost like you could imagine a foundling would possibly get trained for survival skills and tactics of being a Mandalorian. So in this episode, he kind of gets shown, you know, a little bit more explanation behind the uh, navigational systems and that. Um, and then, yeah, they kind of land on, on Mandalore, which uh, was like a pretty interesting design. I mean, I'm really curious as to see how they were going to do this because they kind of almost talked about, like, you know, how it's pretty much all been turned to, like, glass and crystal and that from the, uh, from the fusion bombs. And so to kind of have yeah. that texture, I thought, looked really interesting. Visually, it was, it was absolutely stunning going through. And we saw it last week, landing in the rain when he went to visit Bo-Katan, which just always looks impressive. He looked great in Attack of the Clones. He looked really cool in this. And again, going into 
you know, through the upper atmosphere and the thunder and the darkness and the rain lashing at the ship and you're thinking, what's coming? You felt like something was going to happen and then he broke through. That beautiful scene of breaking through, which felt a little bit to me like a reverse version of The Matrix when they go up above the clouds in The Matrix and take a look and like, oh my goodness, there's there's sunlight and there's, you know, there's light and back down they go, you know, it was that kind of film. Adored that. And like you say, the glass, just that feeling that this this place has been not just bombed to bits, but seared like a steak, you know, just absolutely wrecked. And really, in, in in the timeline, it's not that long ago since they did it. You probably, again, maybe less than 20 mm-hmm. years since they would have done what they did. But as you say, the, the whole place was completely wrecked beyond pretty much all recognition. But that being said, as a viewer watching what we saw, just just gorgeous to watch yeah you know as we start to make our way down into the mines we get like our first encounter of mandalorian wildlife with those uh crazy slightly star trek original series looking alamites they've just got a really interesting look and i and you kind of wonder i mean obviously bo katan is aware of them so i'm guessing they're they're native to mandalore and they haven't somehow evolved Great storytelling. Din pulls out the dark saber. He hasn't got any better. He's still swinging it the same way as I swing a twenty kilo sledgehammer. Um, <laughs> it's not very graceful. At the end of the day, he he also is very savvy and, and he manages to dispatch him and uses that massive drop to his uh, advantage. Yeah, shame there wasn't a Wilhelm yeah. scream. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah, I felt like that. That would have been kind of cool, wouldn't it? I mean, yeah, he he does take them down quite neatly. He's still rubbish with the dark saber, and you think if it is two years and Grogu has been training, been seen doing the like the Yoda leaps from Attack of the Clones yeah. when he jumps into Pelly's yeah. arms. And he's definitely more vocal. Yeah. He's definitely more vocal. You know, there was a few times when things were being said that he wasn't so keen on, and he made that noise, bowing raspberry yeah. almost. But Mando, Grogu's been training. We know where he's been. He's been with Luke and, and Ahsoka for a while. And Mando, what's Mando mm. been doing? Has he been sitting in a bar like Indy did when he thought Marion was dead in Raiders? <laughs> or has he has he been out doing other stuff? He sure as heck hasn't been training with that Darksaber. And I suppose if he had that encounter with the Armourer, who basically said, you are a Mandalorian no more. What's the time period been occupied doing? It's not been training with that sword because it's still, like you say, he expected to pick up a fencing foil and he's actually picked up a broadsword because he could barely lift the damn thing. Bo-Katan gets her hands on that thing later on and she is absolutely on it. So I think it's all down. And the armor has said it's kind of almost down to you've got to believe it. You've got to believe that you're worthy of the sword. It's like picking up Thor's hammer. Mm. Bo-Katan's got all the belief in the world. Mando, maybe not so much. So, yeah, it was his own, like a lot of you said, it's kind of his own fighting savvy that got him through that, that sort of sequence. Yeah, of and, and to be fair, the one thing I always find very interesting with Mando and his fighting is he relies really heavily on his Beskar armour. And oh, uh, so you do wonder how, how he would fare sometimes in these situations if he hasn't had that. Maybe it's a subconscious thing as well. Now that Din was on the quest to be redeemed subconsciously mm. he's got to be thinking am i worthy of of holding this sword am i worthy of carrying this blade you know he's kind of got the mental block whereas bo-katan has you know since the moment we've met her it's basically you know that sword is mine that belongs to me and my family there's a lineage there and fair play to her because i was really curious the way that they placed her in the trailers almost felt like she was going to be more antagonistic towards din this season I think we both said yeah, that last and, week. And obviously we have uh, only done two episodes, but she could have just taken that 
Darksaber. I don't necessarily know the ins and outs of a Creed when it comes to that. I know, obviously, you've got to best somebody in combat, but if you have to use a Darksaber to rescue them and you use it better than surely because I'm almost tempted to, you know if it was me I, I would probably look at it and look at her wielding it and go do you know what do you want it it's like it's like <laughs> you know when like your mate's really good at a, a computer game and then off I knew you were going to say and it offers you game, like yeah. a controller and you play for a little bit but you're really crap so you go do you know what do you yeah. want to carry on it's, it's fine. Yeah. I'm happy it's, watching you do exactly. it exactly yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but this will be the interesting thing because of where they've left this episode. But yeah, I think this could possibly really uh, cement, I think, two characters' fate, possibly for the foreseeable in this series. For everything in one location, daily news, reviews, interviews, podcasts, video and social media feeds, bookmark fanthatracks.com for Star Wars news 24-7, 365. Din gets captured in an easy way. It was clear that it was a bit of a trap. I wonder if maybe if uh, Matt, if that was Bo-Katan, whether or not she would have picked up that helmet, either ignored it or maybe just thought this is placed a little bit too obviously. But then he you know, mm. gets taken away by these kind of mech droids and stuff. At the first glance, I was like, oh my God, have they really just ripped off the robot from the Netflix Lost in Space series? But like the whole thing with the eye... And the eye moving around and stuff, like the human element to the eye in that, or the alien eye in that, I was like, that is such a wicked design, especially how after yeah. Bo-Katan kind of like dispatches the first droid and he kind of scuttles off and he gets into the bigger thing, then he dies. But I was just like, that is such a well thought out and kind of cool design. Yeah, okay. On one hand, possibly isn't necessarily the most original from like the silhouette but at the same time you know the actual detail is there and i think it's a detail that really kind of for me made made me kind of go that is a really cool creature it definitely had a touch of the general grievous about yeah. it didn't it the sort of the biological within the mechanical which was great and the head running off was just like the thing yeah mando walking into that trap i suppose he can't second guess everything you'd, you'd be tiptoeing around the galaxy and never get anywhere so i suppose he's got to kind of follow his senses and i think he is a little bit thrown by all yeah. of this going back to the dark saber it's it's yeah i agree part of me would be like look you just have it but she said i've got to take it in combat and maybe there's a part of her that thinks could i take him in combat as you say he uses that armor like literally like captain america uses his shield he uses the armor as a defensive weapon almost so it's very clever how he uses it and it's definitely a style and there's also clearly a respect there but also Mando would look at Bo-Katan and because they are so dissimilar in their beliefs of, of what a Mandalorian is, that they haven't yet quite reached that middle ground. And so whilst there's a trust of a kind, I don't think he would trust her with that sword because if she's got that sword, then people will rally to that flag. And if he's got the sword, he doesn't want people to rally to him. He's not there yet. So I think that's why she makes the sword work and he yeah. doesn't. One of the threads of the show as it goes forward, I think, will be him having more belief in the fact that actually I could lead the people mm -hmm. of Mandalore and, and lead them well, not just stop them being mercenaries, get an army together, do this, or maybe where we are in this episode, the wreckage and how it is. That final scene in this episode was an absolute mind-blower, so who knows what's going to be coming up next week. But maybe the, the restoration of Mandalore is an option for him as a leader if it ever gets to that point. But the big thing is is that he's not there yet. He's not ready for that yet. Right now, it's just him and the kid. 
they're both in the right place. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, and actually, the one thing that had me thinking about this was if this is a way of putting Bo-Katan over a little bit more, to use a wrestling term, mm. is it a yeah. way to kind of maybe get her or him maybe to kind of believe in her a little bit more? Yeah. And that's the, and that's the interesting thing, because I always felt that with Din Djarin, he would be probably the reluctant leader rather than the one who really wants it. You want somebody with humility. So, yeah, it could be that. But, I mean, I thought it was really cool how they have used Grogu in this whole episode. He's Yeah, he's starting to have his own proper personality, which I suppose in some respects yeah. is a little bit like R2's, like you said, the way he, you know, he might respond to certain things. And I'm pretty sure at one point, at least I read it as when she said something, he made some noise and I thought he just mm. meant Bitch. You definitely know yeah, what he's exactly. thinking, don't you? I mean, the fact that the whole thing of like him leaving and then getting Bo-Katana and coming back is probably my only grumble of a whole episode. One, partly because it was very quick and very condensed, which is fine. You know, it, I mean, it doesn't we don't need to see like a whole episode of Grogu making his way back up and flying the ship and stuff. But then they kind of went back exactly the same way. And so it just felt like in a computer game, again, and, and I, I seem to use this a lot when I liken um, The Mandalorian to anything, I almost do feel like it is like a, an MMO. You get to a certain point and you get stuck and you have to go all the way back to pick up the wizard or whatever, and then you've got to go back exactly the same way. And it kind of had that kind of vibe about it. We're not going to show you any other aspect. No, there's no other entrance. We're going to go exactly the same way. Yeah. Grogu has been picking up stuff from Mando. As he's clearly saying, you've got to learn the galaxy. You've got to know where planets are. That's how Mandalorian survive. And so Grogu points on the map, and it's R5, who's the astromech, who's got all that information in him, who would, as a droid, take you out a specific way and bring you back a specific way. Although, that being said, you're quite right in that it's Bo-Katan that's flying, coming back. I don't know whether R5 is giving her instructional detail, but she knows that place. She knows where Sundari is. She knows where the Civic Hall is. She knows where the mines are. So she knows that place intimately well because she ruled it for a time. I like that scene. I like that Grogu had picked up what he picked up so quickly. And I also kind of think it was almost a hero moment for R5 because he had that nervous moment of he didn't really want to go around yeah. the corner. And then the Alamites obviously clearly grab hold of him and take him under underground. He had some cool little moments. And I think hopefully, because Mando's distrustful of droids, quite rightly after the run-ins he had with IG-11 and then trusting him, but I think the trust in IG-11 wasn't so much the trust in the droid, it was the trust in Quill, mm-hmm. uh, and that went when Quill went sort of thing, and, and IG-11 makes that great sacrifice, but it's Quill's programming that made him that way. To now have our five, we kind of smile at Pelly because it's her scenes are a little bit goofy, and, and they are a break in the weather, yeah. if you like. Compare that to The Bad Batch, which was fantastic, but really serious all the way through there was no real up mm. moments there was no light in that episode at all it was a pretty dark episode with this mando episode because probably on the grand scheme of things the bad batch is definitely a show made specifically for star wars yeah. fans i can't imagine somebody just wanting to watch animation going i'm watching this really cool show called the bad batch are you a star wars fan no i just like the bad batch you've got to know star wars yeah, to really get exactly. the most out of the bad mm. batch Mando, I think anybody could watch The Mandalorian and pick it up. So you kind of need the pelly moments to, to level exactly. it out. Whereas Andor is more of a connoisseur Star Wars yeah. show. They're very succinct in their speech, but it's very methodical. Like, you know, it's just hammering home that 
exposition that you need. Like another really good example of that is you look at the assault on Scarif. You know, how many times did somebody mm. kind of go, we need to make sure the shield is down so we can send the transmission, yada, yada, yada. And they kept on hammering it home. So it was repeated over and over again by different people, but it's done in such a short, quick way that it's very easy to remember and everybody then knows exactly what the mission is. And, and they kind of do that yeah. really well with Mando. It's like, yeah, I've got to go mm. bathe in the, the waters underneath the, the mines of Mandalore so I can kind of be redeemed and pay penance and all that because I am a Mandalorian no more. And, and so we get that. And obviously that real nice moment with Bo-Katan, I'm going to give you the guided tour. And it's kind of like really for us, you know, she's reading that plaque about how Mandalore, the United, he was the one who tamed the Mythosaur and, and that's the origin of the, the kind of skull design and stuff. And then lo and behold, Din wades into the water and it's not a freaking Dianoga. He gets pulled down and then as Bo-Katan's rescuing him, we then find that actually yeah, there's something still alive and awake and probably very hungry down there. And that's how you oh, end wow. the episode. And I think that is absolute genius. As yes. cliffhangers go, that is definitely a cracking cliffhanger. It was a supreme cliffhanger. But it doesn't generally do that kind no. of cliffhanger. For the most part, it's generally fairly self-contained. This was definitely the old school version of a two-parter. And that was if that was the end of a season, you'd be going... That's best of both worlds, part one. You know, it, it was definitely, it was definitely kind of that level of, I can't wait till next week. I've got it in my head. He was, you would probably get, you know, like a Modoc scene from Ant Man Quantum Mania. You see the back of him walking yeah. the water, you know, with nothing on, maybe just his helmet, like Judge Dredd in the shower. But no, he takes all the bits off he has to take off and walks in in the arm because it's Star Wars. So everything's waterproof. So in he goes. And then when he just disappears, I thought, well, maybe he's just stepped off. A little ledge, but this isn't the moment for humour. Clearly, something's happened, and Bo spots it as you say so quickly. She's in like a shot, and the visuals of her going down under the water, and wow, it was way down under the water. was was fantastic for him to be at the bottom the way he was, almost almost stunned. Mm. And then, as you say, to to start going back up and and her like <gasps> because maybe. I don't know. Maybe she's never seen the Mythosaur. Maybe she doesn't believe that yeah. it's there. It's, it's the Loch Ness yeah, monster, I, isn't it? I think so. I think you're right. I don't think there might have been one, but I, it, it doesn't sound like it's for Crate Dragon where there's a few of them around. Mm. This kind of seems like this was something that has happened many years ago, like George and the Dragon, that yeah. kind of level of myth. Because you think if you're going to put a plaque there, and they, they talk about how it's, you know, sacred kind of area and all that kind of stuff. But clearly they use it for tourists. You're not going to drag tourists down if they're going to get eaten. You know, it, <laughs> although maybe you do, because maybe that's Mandalorian culture. A bit of peril makes for a much more exciting and, and, and better trip advisor reviews for all we know. But one thing that I found really interesting from like the armor perspective is this whole notion that they can seal their helmets and yes. all that and which is like yeah. a real I mean it's a great story plot device convenience I don't necessarily even know how that works maybe that's got to be some kind of magnetic kind of field or something just to kind of keep out anything rather than it physically cutting in or saying I don't know it's more like a mini force field around there sort yeah. of neck well, and chest you or know, something you know like how the, do- the docking yeah. bays have that don't they like you can fly in and yeah. out but obviously the uh, atmosphere is kind of contained the Death Star docking bay and stuff for that it must be something like that because at the same time if it was a physical shield when obviously when she goes down into water and when she kind of comes up and clearly she's uh swearing all the way back up to the top you know all those kind of air bubbles yes. and stuff you kind of think well how would that escape so curious and i'm sure at some point or another somebody will kind of remember that we like visual dictionaries for the, these shows and <laughs> might actually explain it 
That would be nice. I mean, it was always a thing with Stormtrooper armor where they, they could survive yeah. in the vacuum. I forget the number. It's like 15 minutes or something. Just enough time to get yeah. a call out and get picked up or something like that. So um, basically that was the thing. But this, you would imagine a bespoke armor like a Mando's armor would be. It's not like there's a one-size-fits-all armor. They're not Stormtrooper armor. I mean, we do see something similar. Skipping to the Bad Batch briefly, there is a, a moment in the Bad Batch when you see some new armor. There's millions of them, billions of them. But with a Mando armor, armor there's one the armor is not making them all herself there must be must other, be other armors, armors. Yeah. there must be you'd assume there's other armorers we saw it very much early on in the show you know got the small flechettes on his wristbands and he got more shoulder epaulets made and it's all specific to him the requirements of what he wants the, the amount of beskar he's got and the money to pay for it and all the other elements and and also it struck me last week's episode we saw a youngster getting initiated, if you like, as a Mandalorian. And early on, Mando would have so much Beskar and he would say, whatever's left, give it to the Foundlings, put it towards their armour. And so maybe some of the Beskar that Mando used to make his own stuff, whatever was left, ended up in the helmets of these youngsters who are now becoming Mandalorians, just like he did. Somebody probably gave up their Beskar for him. You know, it is a kind of a cyclical thing. I would imagine those suits are pretty substantial. That was deep water yeah, as well. You could that, think wasn't, about pressure. that wasn't 20 yeah. foot down. That was deep. Yeah, the pressure, that was really and, deep. And that was the other thing was like, you know, Star Wars and time seems to have its own pace in Star Wars these days. He seemed to get down to the bottom really, really quick. And so I don't know if like Vermifisaur kind of stuns him on the way down and, you know, throws him down at such a great pace to kind of get him down there because it was a long way to go. The visuals and the actual uh, moment that you needed to see justifies it. Can't complain at all. Where do you think we're going next Ooh. week? Because it's teed up a lot of yeah. stuff there, potentially. And Grogu's still up the top on his own. So I'm hoping we don't have another Jedi deus machina where he comes down mm. and, and saves him. Because we've had that a couple of times. It's totally fine because it reminds us of actually how powerful he potentially could be. However, I think this is to do with... Bo-Katan and Din and I'm two minds I, I almost wonder he tames or kills Vermifisaur or she does that would be my take and I think whoever does is going to go on to lead Mandalore okay I'll give you my my thought I think because we had the the Amban rifle from the holiday special and certain elements of Boba Fett have kind of made their way into Din Djarin yeah. and we did see Fett ride the Rancor in Book yeah, of Boba yeah. Fett which was was a very cool moment the way the armourer was talking was more about sort of taming yeah. the mythosaur than riding the mythosaur. But it wouldn't surprise me one jot if in some form or fashion he comes out of the water on the mythosaur. The relationship between Din and and she she even calls him Din yeah. directly, which you kind of not heard that, that no. often. You know, it was more familiar. She's been in a bit of a funk, not like Theoden in The Two Towers, who's kind of under a, under a fugue state almost and has to be brought out of it by Gandalf, but she was in a funk. In the review I wrote on the site last week, I said Bo-Katan sat pouting on her throne, <laughs> which was a bit much. She wasn't pouting, but she was kind of a bit... She's got she a nice pout, though. Pissed off. She does, yeah, you know, she nice does seem to kind of pout a little bit. And did he notice? No, it's more of an 80s glam metal <laughs> yes. sort of way, I would say. <laughs> did you notice that when Droid goes back up to like inform her that they've had a um, like they've got an un- unannounced visitor, there's like some yeah. kind of like throw or cushion there, which does kind of lead you to think that she. I wonder if she's just sat there like all day just watching binging like Netflix or something. 
Fetflix. 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 There you go. Yeah. So I noticed that kind of uh, that familial term, and I just, oh mm-hmm. God, see, you know, I've clearly started to watch way too much Grey's Anatomy because I'm thinking, oh, is this where they kind of is this a, like a real, like a little budding relationship going on? You know, which would be really interesting, little Mando relationship, and the, the practicalities of how all that would work. It's the DNA of married at first sight. So you put two people with polarizing opinions in a relationship mm-hmm. and see what happens. Now we've got Din and Bo who kind of have different perspectives on the creed and potentially he could be the heir of Mandalore because he's going to tame this Mythosaur and see how does that work with her? Bearing in mind that she's the superior warrior, that could mm. be really interesting going forward. I don't think they'd dare do that in the 2020s, have two characters have a romantic relationship. If this was the 80s, it's (laughs) David and Maddie on Moonlight, isn't it? You know, and it's will they, won't they, and all that sort of stuff. Obviously, that's not the story that Favreau and Filoni want to tell. It's it's a grander story. But nevertheless, just drop the intrigue in there. Just drop the hint of that. It's going to keep you hooked and go, oh, hang on. It was there a little spark there? Because, you know... Bit of romance, it's not a problem. It's kind of cool. I don't know about that, but I I do think there's a warrior's respect between the two of them, without a doubt. To me, if Mando leads, I'd kind of be surprised. If Mando followed, I wouldn't be surprised, but he has to believe what he's following. And Bo-Katan has wanted this. Mando doesn't want this. He is kind of a loner. He's let Grogu into his life. Obviously, a clear affection. He is the kid. She refers to him as your dad. Yeah. Yeah. She actually says that. So that's a known thing between these characters now. That there is a familiarity amongst the, the characters of the Mandoverse. So that's all kind of understood. But I just think we're still working towards a point where one or the other trusts one or the other completely. And at the moment, they're not there. But this whole thing with the Mythosaur, it's like, that's huge. But that at the end, it was like, and it finished. No! A whole week. I don't want to wish my life away because celebrations coming fast enough and I've got too much to do, so I don't want to waste my life away. But nevertheless, God, I want to see next week's episode bad. Oh, me too. Cannot wait. Mark, can you um, let everybody know how they can do that? Thanks for listening to Making Tracks. If you want to be a part of the action and stay updated on all the latest Star Wars news, visit fanthetracks.com or check out the free Fanthetracks app through the App Store to follow us on your mobile device. You can reach out to us and send in your listeners' questions by emailing radio at fanthetracks.com. Comment, like and share on any of our social media feeds at Fanthetracks and be sure to subscribe, leave a review, preferably a five-star one, on Amazon Music, Audible, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast or smart speaker of choice. And as always, thanks to James Temple for composing the Fanthetracks intro, Adam O'Brien for making tracks out of me music and Mark Daniel and Vanessa Marshall for our voiceovers remember tune in to Good Morning Tatooine it's live Sunday evenings at 9 o'clock UK 4pm Eastern 1pm Pacific on Facebook and YouTube and check out our Fantatrax Radio Friday night rotation every Friday night at 7pm UK time for new episodes of the Phantom from Down Under Planet Layer Desert Planet Discs Start Your Engines Collecting Tracks Can of Fodder and special episodes of Making Tracks and that's me done for this episode let's see who comes out on top is it Din is it Bo or is it Vermifosaur find out next week until next time stay safe take care and may the force be with you coming up next on fantha tracks radio it's another episode of making tracks